Let's get it. Everybody and welcome to Ath Legal Ease. I'm your host, Mark Houston II Esquire, and you're t- you're tuned in to episode 14 of Ath Legal Ease. It's crazy it's been so long and we have so many episodes put out so far. Be sure to check out our other content. But tonight we're gonna keep some new information coming your way and we're gonna move in a little bit of a different direction uh, to give you a little bit more variety on the content we're producing here. So Today is August 2nd, 2020. Like I said, this is episode number 14. As a reminder, now this ain't your favorite argumentative sportscast or gossip site, and this definitely ain't your professor's podcast. This is a legal business perspective, coupled with a true love of sport, dictated to the culture, for the culture, by a sports attorney. And as a general disclaimer, the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information content materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only now per usual we're going to go right into it but we have to start all our episodes with a heat check heat check one two and for all of those that thought i was just playing i actually have the shoes on today so today i'm wearing the air jordan 11 legend blue so we all want to know what you guys are wearing um be sure to send that to us let us know Um, And we'll try to get that content added now that we're going live. Now, today's shout-out goes to Rich Paul, who's best known for being LeBron's agent, his representative. So just this week it was announced that he will join United Talent Agency's board of directors. And Paul said in a statement, it's an honor to join the board of directors of a prestigious and successful company like UTA and one so committed to its culture. He went on to say these opportunities are not often presented to black men and women, so it comes with added responsibility to use my position not just to help drive global business forward, but to create more chances for people who look like me and face the same challenges I did. My motivation is to help ensure all young people of color live up to their potential and succeed in the face of systemic inequality that remains as real today as ever. I look forward to working with my UTA colleagues at all levels as a board member. So that's pretty dope. Um, You guys pretty sure know his story. Represented LeBron James. He now represents a lot of other different athletes um, across various sports now. Uh, It was mainly basketball with LeBron, um, Anthony Davis, a few others. Uh, But they've branched branched out now into NFL, and they represent Chase Young, who was the second pick of this year's NFL draft so huge move uh, for Rich Paul Um, rooting for you so keep doing the damn thing so on this day in sports history got a few occurrences that may be of interest so in 1921 eight White Sox players were acquitted of throwing the 1919 World Series in 1992 Jackie Joyner took the gold medal in the heptathlon heptathlon whatever for a second consecutive time which is a pretty crazy event 
uh, to win back-to-back. Um, in 1996, Michael Johnson completed the historic 200-400 meter double race and he also broke the 200 meter world record. In 2012, Michael Phelps won his 16th gold medal when he won the 200 meter individual medley. And with that victory, he became the first male swimmer to win in this, win the same event three consecutive Olympics. So huge. Now, to move on today, we're going to get into a little bit of what's going on with the various restart plans for the various leagues. We're going to do a little bit of recap because sports have returned, but with a slight cap. Now, sports are back with a new feel, a new look, and we'll look into exactly how this is all going over um, in the various leagues. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the NCAA, we'll talk about the MLB, and we'll talk about the NFL. And then shortly after, like I said, we're going into a different a different approach, and we'll have our first guest on. Uh, now she's a patent attorney, an IP attorney, focused on patents and trademarks, uh, located in Los Angeles. So she'll come in and she's gonna lead our case law discussion today so you won't have to be so bored listening to me drone on and on and on uh, about uh, these various cases so we're very excited about that Um, but before we get into that we need to cover our main topic today so let's go now as I've stated sports have returned in a major way now with a new feel a new look Um, and it's pretty satisfying to actually see some sports played Um, now just this past week the NBA bubble has returned Um, a few weeks ago the the WNBA bubble returned we had the MLS bubble return Uh, we had golf events return UFC and boxing matches are under full swing and also the Major League Baseball 60 game season is underway now each of these leagues have all had their own stumbles with returning in the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there have been multiple players who've tested positive for you know, the NBA, the WNBA, the MLS, especially MLB, we'll get to that later, golf events, and the various UFC and boxing matches. Now, that leads us to really answer the question uh, sort of begs the question of whether or not these leagues are going to hold up how sports is actually going to continue and what's going to happen in terms of the various opt-outs etc now what we see here very recently our MLB NFL and even college players are starting to opt out uh, right at the beginning or prior to the beginning of the season So just this past week, um, major college news, a group of Pac-12 football players threatened to boycott fall practices and games if a list of demands that they presented related to safety, racial racial justice, and compensation are not met by the Pac-12 conference. Now, these players 
they've announced this push for athletes' rights, rights in a unified statement, which was released publicly on Sunday morning. Um, here, the Pac-12 players have asked for the conference to enforce safety standards as the teams return. Uh, there were more than 400 Pac-12 players that took part in a group me conversation uh, to organize um, the proposed opt-out and the boycott. Now, the statement was released uh, under the Players' Tribune publication. Uh, it was first reported there um, and a few other um, outlets. But just to read um, a little bit of their statement, uh, the athletes are concerned about a variety of things. So, one, because we're asked to play college sports in a pandemic in a system without enforced health and safety standards and without transparency about COVID cases on our team, the risk to ourselves, our families, and our communities, hashtag we are united. Moreover, because we have adequate COVID testing, because we, want, we must have adequate COVID testing to help protect our health, we are united. Here's another big legal implication. Uh, because we are prohibited from securing representation while being asked to sign documents that may serve as liability waivers, hashtag we are united. Because any player who does not feel comfortable playing this season should be free to opt out without losing their scholarship or any eligibility, hashtag we are united. Because immoral rules would punish us for receiving basic necessities or compensation for the use of our names, images, and likenesses, while many of us and our families are suffering economically from the COVID-19 fallout, hashtag we are united. Now, like I said, this is an unprecedented change and push from college athletes who are not represented by a union, are not seen as employees of the NCAA, um, and instead waive legal recourse and the rights to publication, uh, publicity, um, etc., in order to participate and be qualified as an amateur. But despite all of that, they've come up with a list of demands and have been able to organize themselves accordingly, which is very huge to see. So I'll just read out a few of their demands. Um, they have four major categories, and I'll run through them really quickly. But number one, health and safety protections. So COVID-19 protections, number one, allow option not to play during the pandemic without losing athletics eligibility or spot on our team's roster. Two, prohibit slash void COVID-19 agreements that waive liability. That's a huge one. Mandatory safety standards include COVID-19 measures. One, player-approved safety and safety standards enforced by a third party selected by players to address COVID-19, as well as serious injury, abuse, and death. Next, they want protection of all sports. So preserve all existing sports by eliminating excessive expenditures. Here they name some individuals, Larry Scott, administrators and coaches to voluntary and drastically reduce excessive pay. So they wanna end performance and academic bonuses, which we see can be um, 
you know, great incentives, uh, those performance-based uh, payments and compensation fees, et cetera, are usually tacked into coaches' contracts and, you know, can be upwards of a million dollars, especially if you win a national championship. Uh, three, in lavish facility expenditures and use some endowment funds to preserve all sports. So as an example here, Stanford University has had to cancel several several of their sports due to what they claim are lacking revenue from the co- from COVID-19. Uh, here they're asking that Stanford tap into their $27.7 billion endowment to bring those sports back. That's really huge to see. So three, uh, these Pac-12 players want to end racial injustice in college sports and society. So one, form a permanent civic engagement task force made up of our leaders, experts of our choice, and university and conference administrators to address outstanding issues such as racial injustice in college sports and in society. Um, there have been mentions, um, there have been stories, allegations, especially coming from Clemson um, and a few other um, big major programs in which you know, racial terms have been used. Uh, the treatment of players has been subpar. Um, and those allegations are all, you know, based on racial lines. So it's good to see, you know, a request uh, to, you know, to, to end some of that stuff because we have no place for that in sports. So two, uh, in a partnership with the Pac-12, 2% of conference revenue would be directed by players to support financial aid for low-income black students, community initiatives, and development programs for college athletes on each campus. So here, of course, the players want to set aside some of the conference revenue to assist people who look like them, people who are in the same position as them. And that would be reallocating some of the funds that you know go directly back to the school, go directly to the athletic programs, to the athletic director, um, and also the coaches. Um, and I think you know that's only fair. So the third prong under under point three. Uh, the Pac-12 players want to form an annual Pac-12 Black College Athlete Summit with guaranteed representation of at least three athletes of our choice from every school. So, again, they're getting into, you know, understanding the business of sports, how it's all going to work out, um, and they themselves want representation. So the fourth prong is economic freedom and equality. Now, here... The student athletes are asking for one guaranteed medical expense coverage. So medical insurance selected by players or sports related medical conditions included COVID-19 illness to cover six years after college athletics eligibility ends. So to be extended a little longer. Now, similarly, here we are with name, image and likeness, the NIL, which we've been talking about pretty heavily. Um, under this prong, name, image, and likeness, rights, and representations, student athletes are seeking the freedom to secure representation, receive basic necessities from any third party, and earn money for use of our name, image, and likeness rights. That's huge. And as we can see, the NCAA, various states, everybody's getting involved. So it's good to see um, these student athletes um, have this on their radar and uh, are proactive in securing what 
is going to be a game-changing uh, piece of legislation once it's handed down. Similarly, uh, the, the next prong is a fair market pay, rights, and freedoms. So the student athletes want to distribute 50% of each sport's total conference revenue evenly among athletes in their respective sports. Um, so they want half of the total revenue, conference revenue, to be split evenly. Uh, prong two, six-year athletic scholarships to foster undergraduate and graduate degree completion. So they want to actually finally complete their studies, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, um, which is huge. That would actually, you know, really force the NCAA, the conference here, uh, to live up to his promises that in exchange for your athletic talents that you'll be getting an education. Now, three, uh, they ask for the elimination of all policies and practices restricting or deterring our freedom of speech, our ability to fully participate in charitable work, and our freedom to participate in act campus activities outside of mandatory athletics participation. Four, ability of players of all sports to transfer one time without punishment and additionally in cases of abuse or serious negligence. Now, we all know, we've heard crazy stories that some of these players, when they decide to transfer, are really not allowed to transfer. Um, they have to go through the clearinghouse, and sometimes the NCAA clears them immediately for the season. Sometimes they have to sit out for a season before they can actually play. So you're looking for an end to those practices. Um, five, the players want to complete eligibility after participating in a pro day if player goes undrafted and foregoes professional participation within seven days of the draft. So they want draft considerations in which they can put their name out, they can see what feedback they're getting and see what exactly, uh, what, what is their best decision um, given that feedback. Generally, if a player de declares for the draft, more or less they have to you know go that route that'll that will um violate their eligibility um for the ncaa uh and the last thing that they're asking for is another big legal one due process rights so in the court of law you are uh given due process rights as owed to you and so in these various cases students student athletes have been denied that and so they're specifically asking for it now now i think this is huge because these student athletes, you know, have sort of organized all of this, uh, you know, with some advisors. Uh, but like I said, in an unprecedented move, they're sort of trying to force the hand of the Pac-12. So we'll see how this all plays out. But again, this is all along the same lines of opting out due for co due to COVID. Now, very similarly, we have a story from. The MLB ranks, you know, they had a you know a pretty big issue uh, trying to get the season started in the first place. They are not going with a bubble. Uh, they're limiting it to um, divisional games um, here in the U.S. So, um, you know, the various teams can only compete with whom exactly they're in the division and the conference with. Um, but just last week, at least... 11 Miami Marlins players 
tested positive for COVID-19. Now, this is after a game or, or maybe even prior to a game. I'm sorry, no, it was after a game with the, uh, with the Phillies. They tested positive. Because of that, the Miami's Marlins season has been put on hold. So a few of those games have been postponed. Um, and all these players are, you know, undergoing uh, social distancing and, you know, further testing. And it's been reported that the players who tested positive had to remain in Philadelphia for a while. And then a bus was chartered to drive them all the way from Philadelphia to Miami. Now, I don't know whose job that would be um, to drive that bus, but I'm sure that probably wasn't the most pleasant ride, um, you know, for you know either side, the driver, the players infected, um, and not to mention, you know, the maybe almost probably a 20-hour ride at least from Philadelphia to Miami. Now, Manford, the commissioner, stated that after all of this, um, that he still believes that the protocols are adequate to keep players safe. Now, that was before, you know, another development. So on Friday, this past Friday, it was reported that several Cardinals, Cardinals players had tested positive and their game versus the Brewers had to be postponed. Um, so it seems to be that, you know, this virus is still taking hold and causing some issues. Now, it's been reported from several sources, CBS Sports, um, etc., that there are no real clear guidelines on how the agree in, in the agreement between the MLB, the MLBPA, um, that really relates to what exactly would prompt a shutdown of the season. And so it really leaves that decision and the discretion to Commissioner Rob Manford. Now, he said in a few other statements uh, regarding, you know, this very instance that, quote, a team losing a number of players that rendered it completely non-competitive would be a standard for considering a pause or a postponement really at the team level. And that he would have to undergo some sort of subjective judgment to determine whether a team was really reduced to non-competitive standards. And to go further, he stated, I don't have a firm number of days in mind to really pause a season. Um, and that he thinks the way he, the way he thinks about it is that in the vein of competitive integrity in a 60-game season, quote, if we have a team or two that's really decimated with a number of people who had the virus and can't play for any significant period of time, it could have a real impact on the competition, and we'd have to think very, very hard about what we're doing. Well, just some of that has been elucidated with the Giannis Cispedes, probably butchering his name, Cespedes, uh, who opted out of the MLB season mid-game on Sunday. So Cespedes, he didn't show up to the game. Um, and according to Jeff Passan, uh, you know, a guy on that you know I follow um, uh, from ESPN, 
he stated that security was sent to his room. They found his room empty. Uh, all his belongings were taken. And that mid-game, his agent called GM Brody Van Wagenen, and he opted out. Now, I wonder how exactly that's going to work uh, with player compensation. I guess maybe you get paid for the games that you – only the games that you played um, and not the ones that you, uh, you know, weren't around for. So it's getting – it's heating up in MLB baseball. Uh, it's really, you know, testing the health and safety protocols um, set in place for the various players – um, and you can see that even though some players were down to start with even more positive tests popping up, starting to scare a few players. That now takes us to the NFL and what exactly is going on with the NFL and what attempts they're making in regards to COVID-19. Now, very recently, the NFL and the NFL Players Association agreed to a plan that would allow players to opt out of the season due to COVID-19 health concerns. Now, under that agreement, high-risk individuals could opt out and receive a $350,000 stipend, whereas those less at risk would receive a $150,000 stipend. So players under that agreement, they also have the ability to, to potentially opt out later in the season in the event that a family member or someone important becomes sick. In order to, to opt out, uh, the players must provide the club with written notice of the decision to opt out. And once that notice is given, it cannot be revoked. So once you decide you're out, you're out. Now, a player for the Chiefs, Duvernay Tardif, he was the very first player to opt out of his 2020 contract due to COVID-19. Now, what's interesting is he's the very first active NFL player to graduate from medical school and has spent a lot of his offseason working in long-term care facilities in Canada to help individuals with COVID-19. So he had, uh, he came out with a statement and mentioned why exactly he doesn't want to participate. And he listed all his reasons for COVID-19. Now, at 29, you know, he's still at his prime. He still can play. He was expected to contribute um, as a starter for the Chiefs, um, who are defending, um, who are defending Super Bowl champions, but he's opted out. So you can check out his statement, um, you know, see if that resonates. Um, and I think it has resonated with a few players because there are some players that have opted out. But again, as I said, sports are indeed a business. So yes, while there may be health and safety concerns. There's some individuals, you know, that despite those concerns still would like to play in order to receive their full salary. So, you know, as I've stated before, we've had some instances in the WNBA and the NBA in which players had to decide whether or not they were going to return from injury or whether they were going to play through a high risk status 
um, in order to receive compensation. Now, another high-profile player, Odell Beckham Jr., wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns, made a made some statements on whether or not he was going to opt out. Now, earlier on, there was some concerns um, whether or not he was going to opt out. And some here are some of his statements um, made to the Wall Street Journal. He said, quote, Obviously, with everything going on, it doesn't make sense why we're trying to do this. He went on to say, quote, we're not ready for football season. So why are we trying to push forward? It's obviously obviously for their money. And that bothers me because there's there's always been this. And I hate saying it like that. But the owners. The owner's attitude essentially is, oh, we own you guys. And just and just kind of that fairness going on that they don't see us as human. I just feel like the season shouldn't happen, and I'm prepared for it not to happen, and I wouldn't mind not having it. He goes on to say, we're in a place where people are really being effective. Economy is being affected. People are dying. Numbers are spiking. The shit is real. He goes on to say, yet they're trying to make football happen. With everything going on, what does that say about our country? That football is that important. Now, he made those statements um, in a variety of, uh, you know, capacities uh, to the Wall Street Journal, I think, in one of his own uh, either podcasts or um, YouTube channels. Um, But it's been reported that Odell Beckham will not be opting out of the season. So, as you can see, you know, there is some concern as to whether, you know, the players are making the right decision um, in returning. But... As we stated, sports is a business, and it will continue to thrive. So we'll be sure to keep you updated on all those developments, um, and we'll see. I should mention, before we move along, uh, to circle back to the MLB controversy, is that with the cancellations of the various teams due to positive tests, MLB broadcasters, channels that own the rights to broadcast MLB games, were warned by MLB officials um, and Commissioner Rob Manfred to actually have additional alternative programming scheduled just in case some of these games are canceled in the future. So that could be a signal that baseball could be at least considering a full stoppage for the season. Now, let's hope it doesn't escalate to that, but we'll keep you posted nonetheless. That now brings us to our case law segment. And as I've said, uh, we're changing the pace today and we're going to have our very first guest. So our first guest, Kasia Traubin, who is a fashion IP attorney who focuses on patent and trademark work, within the fashion world, based in Los Angeles, will join us. Now, we'll be discussing several new cases. Uh, We'll be talking about, we'll be discussing the NBA Aura Smart Ring. Uh, We'll delve into exactly what that ring is, why it's being used. We'll look at the patents, utility and design patents, to determine whether or not this ring can actually be trusted 
to detect COVID symptoms as indicated. Um, after that, we'll get into a very interesting case, a patent litigation case between Nike and Adidas for the Flyknit versus PrimeNet technology. After that, we'll hop into some trademark discussion and we'll further discuss a couple cases, um, an instance here in which Nike is trying to trademark the SNKRS sneaker app logo, uh, which a lot of people have been taking uh, some pretty big L's on um, for the various shoe releases, all you sneakerheads out there. And then we'll close up our discussion by rapping about the Monster Energy Drink versus Toronto Raptor logo dispute. So be sure to check us out. Uh, we'll be sure to upload some of those patents and some links to a few cases that we're discussing for you to follow along. So we're looking forward to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Athlegal Ease Case Law. Now, usually you guys hear me bore you to death over and over every week about these various cases that pop up. So we're going to try something new this week. We have Kasha Trubin, a fashion IP patent attorney based in Los Angeles, uh, with us this week. Hey, Kasha, how are you? Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Really appreciate you being here. You're our very first guest on Athlegal Ease, so really appreciate your time and really appreciate you coming to vibe with us tonight. So Great, thanks. First things first, we got to get into a heat check. Now, as I stated earlier, I'm wearing the Jordan 11 Legend Blues. We were wondering what you have on tonight. I have the Adidas Falcons in pink and black. I love it. I love it. So everyone out there, if our guests can enjoy the heat check, you can enjoy the heat check. So get with it. So Kasha, we really appreciate you having uh, being here with us tonight. And we were just wondering what your path was. Um, to making it to where you are in the fashion IP world. Um, if you could give us a little bit of background. Sure. So my journey kind of started when I was in high school. I was really into fashion news and designers. And then I went to college. I got my bachelor's in biology. And during my summers, I worked at like kind of a high-end designer clothing boutique in Toronto, Canada when I had time off. And I kind of got to see the behind the scenes of fashion, some buying um, issues, which were really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. uh, then I went on to do my MBA and I took some elective classes during my MBA, which was in finance. Um, I took various corporate law classes. I really liked them. And I went on to law school after that. Then once I finished law school, I realized I was eligible to take the patent bar since I had an undergraduate degree in science biology, 
And not many people know, but you can only sit for the patent bar if you have an undergrad degree in a technical area like engineering, computer science, biology, or chemistry. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to do that and I passed and that's how I got into my journey. (laughs) That's really amazing. Thanks for sharing. Um, Really awesome uh, to hear that transition. Um, And from our listeners there, you know, you can't, there are pathways um, through the law and either um, other fields um, to continue in your interest area. So it's really cool to hear. So to get right into it tonight, um, like I said, we're going to hand you the keys for our case law section. Um, You're going to walk us through um, some interesting intellectual property related cases um, as they relate to sports. Um, So just to hop right into it today, we'll be revisiting a story that we sort of chatted about um, a few weeks ago in a a previous episode uh, involving the NBA and the Aura Smart Rings. Now, the NBA has essentially mandated that the players wear these smart rings in order to adhere to the healthy and safety protocols in order to potentially detect COVID-related symptoms. Now, this ring, which is given out to players, staff, coaches, etc., this ring, it measures temperature, heart rate, respiratory functions, etc., all of these symptoms could potentially be symptoms of COVID. Now, as I said, this was essentially mandated and the NBA sent out a memo essentially stating that opting out of wearing this ring really isn't an option. And any player who were to refuse to undergo the daily health monitoring would likely be prohibited from engaging in group activities until the monitoring is accomplished and or may be required to leave the campus permanently. Now, Kasha, we have you here today to sort of walk us through exactly how this ring works. Um, and if this thing can maybe even be trusted um, to detect what ex- exactly it's saying. Right. Yeah. So this is a really interesting invention. They have lots of different patents on it. So before I get into the kind of patent law side mm. of it, I'll just give a quick definition of some background patent law. So okay, that'd be great. A patent is a form of intellectual property that gives its owner the legal right to exclude others from making, using, or selling an invention for a limited period of years, and that's done in exchange for publishing a public disclosure of the invention. So this is where a patent attorney like me would come in and write the patent application for the inventor. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, there are three types of patents. Two are pretty common. The first is a utility patent. And that's a patent that protects the way something is used and the way it works. So, for example, like a car engine or the way a vacuum cleaner works would be an Mm -hmm. example. And the invention to be protected has to be useful, non-obvious, and novel. So that's kind of the legal standard here. Okay. And if you obtain a utility patent, you can prevent others from making, using, selling, or importing your product into the U.S. that is covered by your issued patent. Okay. The other type of very common patent is a design patent. Mm-hmm. And this kind of patent protects the ornamental nature of your invention or product only. So basically the visual qualities of an item. And an example of a design patent in the aura ring example mm-hmm. would be the shape of the ring. It does have a somewhat unique shape to it, or perhaps um, the shape of a novel type of athletic shoe might also qualify for a design patent. 
And then this rare third type of patent is called a plant patent, and that protects a new and unique plant's key characteristics from being copied, sold, or used by others. A patentable plant can be natural bred or somatic, and it can be invented or discovered, but a plant patent will only be granted to a discovered plant if the discovery is made in a cultivated area. So I don't typically spend too much time on this since it Mm. is pretty rare to have. Um, And then a really interesting thing about patent law, just as a sidebar, is that basically the whole U.S. patent system was kind of overhauled almost 10 years ago now when President Obama signed the Leahy-Smith America Invents Act, Mm -hmm. and it switched the U.S. patent system from a first-to-invent to a first-to-file system. Okay, and what what exactly does that mean? Well, it basically means that before this act, our patent system was first inventor to invent, not necessarily file their patent would have priority. So this means that back then you could show lots of outside evidence that you are in fact the first to invent your invention. This Mm -hmm. obviously took up a lot of time. So now the new system is probably more efficient as first to file, although each system has its pros and cons. And the first to file patent is also what most international countries have in place. So now the U.S. is kind of um, on the same page as them. And when I started practicing patent law, this law was just slowly coming into effect. It was like a Mm -hmm. huge deal back then to the patent community. But Mm -hmm. now it's just a norm and... Maybe most new attorneys don't even know about the old system, but it's, <laughs> <Probably not. laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> That's really cool. So this ring, uh, as I stated, um, would have to be subject to, you know, sort of almost, you know, maybe perhaps the new collective bargaining agreement uh, that the NBA put in place for the remainder of the season. Now, just looking over the collective bargaining agreement, um, which is Article 22 um, there in the collective bargaining agreement, it really only mentions um, uh, enumerated list of maybe about six or so devices uh, that can be used. And all of these had to be cleared uh, through a committee. Um, and as I stated um, before, the team may request the player utilize the, 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 the device, but the player may also refuse at any time. So under the collective bargaining agreement, the teams, staff, et cetera, cannot use anything found on those devices to negatively affect a player's uh, perhaps contract negotiations. Now, with that said, Kasha, can you please elaborate on what patents Aura has and what some of the features are uh, that were patented, obviously, uh, by novel means? Yes. So the Aura Ring Company, which is based out of Helsinki, Finland, and the inventors also seem to be Finnish, based out of Mm -hmm. Helsinki, they have two design patents for the ring. So one design patent was filed back in 2015. And when I looked up the patent drawings, it shows a ring with kind of like a square flat face in the top, which does not look like the ring that they're selling now. And then their updated second design patent was filed in 2018. And according to those drawings, it is more of a streamlined ring, slightly raised point at the top, and it looks a lot more like the ring that's currently being sold. So I would assume based on this patent history that they were playing around with the design and then they probably optimized it into the shape that it is now. 
okay, maybe perhaps make it look a bit more sleeker. Um, and we're going to put the links to the various patents um, in our comment section or description section uh, for this episode for any of those who want to take a look at these patents. Um, maybe you've never seen those for the first time. Yeah, exactly. Patents are really interesting because the first part of them is the background and history usually of the invention. So that might be interesting for your listeners to uh, read about. And the Aura company also owns three utility patents. So these again are the patents that protect the way something works. So in mm -hmm. this case, the way that the ring works. So the first kind of relevant one is titled Method and System for Defining Balance Between Physical Activity and Rest. And I'll just read a brief description of the abstract. The abstract is kind of like a quick little paragraph, a synopsis mm -hmm. of the whole patent. Okay. And that states that disclosed as a method for defining a balance between physical activity and rest for a user, the method comprises collecting sensor data indicative of a measure of activity performed and rest taken by the user as a function of time. So this patent is basically for tracking a user's activity and then showing the status of balance between a user's physical activity and rest. Wow, that sounds uh, very similar to something you might see maybe on the iPhone um, or the iWatch where you can maybe track your active and uh, passive calories. Um, right. Sounds very similar. So now this is essentially saying that the ring can detect an individual's times of rest, activity, et cetera. So maybe from this pattern, you can maybe track when and where someone is sleeping or is supposed to be sleeping, maybe? It's possible. I would think that the stages of very low activity or rest, may you may be able to conclude that right. the person is, in fact, sleeping, which is going to bring us to an interesting patent application that this company yeah. has, too. Yes. Yeah. So um, just to finish off the utility patents, a mm -hmm. second one they have is for the method of manufacturing this ring. It's titled Wearable Electronic Device and Method for Manufacturing Thereof. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. It's kind of technical. But this patent basically discloses the method of manufacturing their ring or their product. And it was initially filed in 2015. Um, then they have a utility patent for a chargeable device with a charger. I won't get into that one. It's not overly relevant. Mm -hmm. um, and then they, the Aura company owns three patent applications. So okay. a patent application is an application for a patent. It's a patent that has not yet been granted, but they are in the process of it. And the one really interesting patent application they have, which was filed very recently, not even a year ago, September 2019, is titled Method Mobile Device and System for Optimizing Wake-Up Alarm for Two or More Persons persons. Wow. And it states that the present invention discusses a system and method for defining an optimal wake-up time in a person. In that regard, skin temperature, heart rate, and amount of motion can be tracked with the ring, and the analysis combines at least two persons and sets rules so that no one is preferably woken from a deep sleep phase. So this is interesting because this device basically optimizes the best time to set an alarm or to wake you up. Wow, that's extremely interesting. I mean, I wonder if this thing maybe, you know, vibrates or maybe has an alarm on it where you can set, you know, a wake up time. But 
Uh, nonetheless, uh, you can probably imagine the million things that this ring could possibly do. But I think what's pertinent to point out here is that you must know who's really owning the rights, uh, who's really tracking this stuff. I mean, because this information really can be used for and against you. Um, and as I've stated, this ring, at least on the old collective bargaining agreement, you know, is, is not really mentioned. And hopefully it's covered under this new collective bargaining agreement, the more revised uh, collective bargaining agreement. Otherwise, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure, a, a lot of legal ramifications uh, that can be raised. Um, but to just close uh, this segment out um, involving the Aura Ring, uh, Aura itself released a statement announcing, a press release announcing the partnership. And I read directly from uh, their press release, which states, quote, with the NBA's many high profile players and personnel, accuracy regarding health information is business critical. An aura responds to the timely need of bringing players and league staff peace of mind as they head to Orlando. Drawing on significant advancements made in research and its longstanding or or a team's product, Aura has developed a health risk management platform designed to monitor potential illness risks in workface workforce populations. Now, Aura goes on to say, Aura's role is to help the league and players association make informed decisions for a safe return to play. It is a supplement to medical testing, not a replacement. With Aura, the NBA, the NBPA are all equipped with efficient and accurate way of learning more about who may be in a higher risk category. Now, that seems like a really cool invention, and I'm sure it's going to help out um, the players, coaches, staff in the NBA adhere to healthy health and safety protocols. But we must hope that with the licensing agreements, HIPAA issues, et cetera, that players' data and the collected data thereof will be protected accordingly. Yes, exactly. It's All very right. important. All right. We can hit um, stop on that. We'll save that segment. Okay. All right. And so moving right along, um, you see some of the transactional components involved with patents, which would be called more the patent prosecution side of things. Now, that just moves us in to the next part, which, of course, with you know the prosecution comes the litigation side. So we're, we're now going to talk about a pretty big case, Adidas AG v. Nike, uh, which is a very recent case been going on for quite some time um started back in 2012 uh, and it's all involved around sports apparel so nike's fly knit technology which are made of sho- which is shoes with one piece uppers woven out of lightweight fibers that can provide greater flexibility support or duration through the specific weaving of fibers and this is 
rubs up against Adidas's very similar product, which is called Prime Knit. Now, these shoes, if you take a look at them, if you Google this case, you'll be able to see that these shoes look a lot alike. And runners love these sock-like shoes um, for their comfort. Now, Kasha, tell us more about this case, how patent infringement perhaps works, and maybe even how the patent process all really plays out. Yeah, so this is, there was a recent decision in this longstanding battle, as you said, between Nike and Adidas. And on June 25th of this year, so just Mm -hmm. a little over a month ago, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit affirmed a patent trial and appeal board decision that held that certain claims of Nike are not unpatentable as obvious. Now, just by way of reference, the patent trial and appeal board is like an administrative body of the United States Patent and Trademark Office, which decides issues of patentability. Mm -hmm. So the PTAB decides appeals from decisions of patent examiners. They also adjudicate patentability of issued patents challenged by third parties in post-grant proceedings. So here in this case, Adidas asserted a ground of obviousness based on different combinations of prior art. So basically, that means that Adidas didn't think that the Nike patents were non-obvious. And as we discussed before, a utility patent has to be non-obvious, useful, and novel. So they said that that one prong was not there. Mm -hmm. And the part of the patent that Adidas had issue with in particular was Nike's patent. And there was a claim there that stated a method of manufacturing an article of footwear, I'm reading straight from the claim here, the method comprising steps of mechanically manipulating a yarn with a circular knitting machine to form a cylindrical textile structure, removing at least one textile element from the textile structure, and incorporating the textile element into an upper of the article of footwear. So as I mentioned before, non-obviousness is a requirement for patentability. And this states that if an invention is obvious, then it is not protectable. So if someone of ordinary skill in a relevant field could easily make the invention based on prior art. So basically, the Federal Circuit stated that the obviousness inquiry does not merely ask whether a skilled artisan could combine the references, but instead asks whether they would have been motivated to do so. And ultimately... They sided with Nike and they refused to invalidate the relevant claims in Nike's patent. So this was kind of a big, big win for Nike here. That's a huge win. And from some of the research uh, that I've been able to pull up, uh, at least back in 2013, uh, the fly knit for Nike has amassed over one billion in sales um, since that time. So from 2013, 2012, um, up to now, uh, you know, a billion dollars worth of these shoes have been sold. So it's pretty it's a huge deal for uh, the Nike retail giant um, sports apparel giant to want to protect their assets, their intellectual property assets accordingly. Definitely. So that's enough about patents. We really appreciate you breaking those down because those are you know some of the most complex um, aspects of the law. Um, We're going to move right on to another sort of component, uh, and this is now the trademark side. Now, here we have a few more cases um, 
that I haven't discussed. So this isn't that much of a recap. We're going to give you something new as we promised to do every single week. But now we're going to move along to the Nike sneakers app trademark situation. Now the Nike sneakers app, um, I'm sure all you sneakerheads out there are well aware of, you know, this app that you download, you have to log into, um, you know, if the new shoe drops, uh, you know, maybe 10 a.m. on a Saturday, you have to be on there. And a lot of people have been taking a lot of L's these days trying to get these shoes. So Nike is in the process of trademarking the SNKRS um, trademark logo uh, for this app. Now, Kasha, we have you here and we're relying on your expertise to, you know, break it down to us. Uh, what exactly is a trademark and what exactly are they talking about? Okay, so a trademark is a symbol, word, or words that are legally registered or established by use as representing a company or product. And trademarks can also be split into two parts, kind of how a patent was. You have a character trademark and a logo trademark. So a character trademark protects the actual word or the brand name of a company or product. And then the logo is kind of what it sounds like. It's just a symbol associated with the company or product. Um, And then I can just give you a quick rundown of the trademark process. So what happens when you file a trademark? It probably takes close to a year total from your very first application to getting the trademark approved. So Mm -hmm. first, you would ideally hire an attorney to file your application for you. Typically, um, I'll do a trademark search for my client before Mm -hmm. I file just to kind of make sure that there's no conflicting marks out there. And if there are, then I would warn my client about them. Right. Um, And now, interestingly, the United States Patent and Trademark Office implemented one of its biggest policy changes in recent years. As of August 3rd, 2019, the USPTO now requires foreign applicants to be represented by a U.S. attorney. Mm. With this new policy change, the USPTO hopes to increase the accuracy of the United States Trademark Registry. So that's kind of interesting. Um, So once you file a trademark... It gets assigned to a trademark examiner, which is someone who works through the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Within about three months, they'll review your application and they're either going to allow it through to the next phase or they'll send you something called an office action. Now, this isn't necessarily a really bad thing. I think about 80% of trademark applications get sent this office action. Okay. And so these are usually sent if the examiner needs clarification on something or they see a bar to registration, a pretty common reason to get one of these office actions from the trademark examiner is for a likelihood of confusion basis, meaning that if your mark were to register, it would likely cause confusion with another already filed or registered mark. So Uh, if that happens, you get an office action and you would get an attorney to try to overcome this issue. They would send in more information. They would clarify if that's the issue. And you have six months to reply to an office action. Okay. So and let's not, assume. Not to get us t- sorry, not to get us too sidetracked though, um, but just to jump back um, to almost the priority question uh, that we spoke about with uh, patents. Now with trademarks, uh, is it a first to file or is it a first to use? How exactly uh, is the timeline started? Well, uh, that's that's a really good question because you can actually file a trademark on an intent to use, meaning mm-hmm. you can reserve 
the name that you like. Mm-hmm. So if you file intent to use, you don't actually have to be using the trademark yet, but you're just reserving the name so that nobody else can get it. And uh, then the okay. other basis is already used in commerce. So that's where you have to show a specimen of, you know, your live website, your sales, something like mm-hmm. that. But yeah, that is a very important uh, question. Thank you exactly. for that. Exactly. Thank you. And, uh, you know, just to tie this in, you know, to a little bit more sports with our listeners, uh, we've seen the Washington Redskins have had to change their name uh, to the Washington Football Club. Uh, There have been what we call uh, trademark squatters, if you will, um, who have purchased up uh, a lot of the names with an intent to use uh, for the various names that the Redskins could potentially uh, want to use. So, and we'll get back into that, uh, you know, we'll put a bow and we'll put a, a pin in that one. And perhaps we, we can circle back to that um, later on. But here Nike is filing these trademark applications uh, for, like I said, SNKRS sneakers. Um, and so they want to use these, uh, the benefits um, and the purpose for these trademarks they want to use with uh, clothing and footwear and online marketplace footwear uh, featuring footwear and clothing. A market, excuse me, a marketplace featuring footwear and clothing services of providing information, news, commentary in the field of fashion, entertainment, sneakers, popular sports culture, uh, etc. Um, and also, it wants a service of providing a website that gives users the ability to review various print, photographic, graphic images, audio, and video content. Now, recently. Nike received an office action. Uh, am I correct? Or Yes, yes, you are correct, Mark. Mm-hmm. So the attorney for Nike filed a trademark application in late January mm-hmm. for their swoosh mark and then the letters S-N-K-R-S. I believe mm-hmm. they filed a couple other ones too, but let's just focus on this particular one here. Okay. And in April, they did, in fact, get an office action. And the trademark examiner stated that Nike's going to have to amend its ac- application to disclaim rights to the word sneakers. Wow. He wrote that S and KRS is the phonetic equivalent of sneakers. And the term sneakers merely describes applicant services related to sneakers, including its website and information services. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a problem because a word only functions as a trademark when you can distinguish Nike's goods from another company's goods. Mm-hmm. So in this case, the USPTO further asserted that a novel spelling or intentional misspelling that is the phonetic equivalent of a merely descriptive word is also merely descriptive if purchases purchasers would perceive um, the different spelling to be the equivalent of the word. So mm-hmm. SNKRS, you know, obviously sounds like sneakers. So that's kind of the crux of the trademark issue here. Okay. And so essentially, you know, what they're saying to break it down a little bit more is that consumers may be confused and perhaps could associate a little bit more ownership uh, of the word uh, Nike as it relates, or I'm sorry, sneakers. Sneakers. Uh, and S-N-K-E-R-S, et cetera. Right. Because basically you can't the word sneakers still remains available for other businesses to use in marketing and selling comparable goods or services. So Nike mm-hmm. can't claim sneakers to sell sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it would be nice. It would um, be nice. You know, so <laughs> yeah. For all those sneakerheads out there, uh, you know, maybe why this is why the apps, you know, 
are not working because uh you know they have all this you know all the their time tied up uh dealing with the uspto um and trying to get this trademark through but right. we'll see keep trying um hopefully you know we won't be taking as many l's because there's a few hot releases coming up uh the next few weekends of the summer so be on the lookout for those now kasha we have one more case uh to talk about with you today and as we did with the patents uh, we sort of go from the transactional side to the litigation side. Now, this case here that we'll discuss is between Monster Energy Drink Company and the Toronto Raptors. And some of you guys can probably guess if you know what the Monster Energy Drink logo looks like and also the Toronto Raptors logo looks like. There's a a monster beast, almost three-fingered, fang scratch sort of thing um now here there's an argument a spat a legal tiff if you will between the two companies um so could you give us a little bit more background on this case kasha and uh where perhaps we are uh you know in its uh its legal posture now Yes. So it seems like the Raptors are claiming that they've used this logo since 1994. However, they did update it since then. Mm -hmm. And Monster claims they've been using their logo since 2002. And something else that's really interesting to point out is that Monster Energy had um, kind of a similar trademark issue um, out of the Japan Patent Office a few months ago. February 28, 2020, the Japan Patent Office dismissed a trademark opposition claim filed by Monster Energy against a Japanese company Mm. for their M logo. Now, this M logo is the same M logo that Monster is disputing in the Toronto Raptors case, too. It's kind of like that B scratch, which I guess does look like a lowercase letter M. Yes. so this company in Japan, the company name is Monstar, S-T-A-R, mm-hmm. and they have an M logo also, arguably, maybe can look like a B scratch. It's tough, tough mm-hmm. to say. But this Japanese company is registered in the area of hair products for men, hairsprays, cosmetics, soaps, mm-hmm. detergents. And the Japanese board stated that from appearance to them, it's obvious that both marks are distinguishable. Okay. And they said that the good services classifications were different. So the Japanese board held that the marks at issue are dissimilar and unlikely to cause confusion. And they ruled against Monster Energy. So this mm-hmm. kind of shows that. Monster Energy is really proactive in protecting their IP rights. Right. And this is, you know, this is not necessarily a bad thing. No, not at all. That's, I mean, you can see why, uh, you know, I'll give you a stat here uh, that came from uh, the final brief that was uh, recently submitted. It was a 103-page brief uh, that was just submitted last week. Supposedly, Monster has spent over $6.2 billion in promoting its Monster brand and, and Claw logo. So you can see why, you know, they'd be willing to cross oceans uh, to protect their intellectual property rights. Now, uh, this leads me to another question of a registered versus unregistered trademark um, and how that works, perhaps domestically um, and abroad. 
Well, you can have something called common law trademark rights in your trademark mark, which means mm -hmm. that if you've been using the mark for, let's say, five years or more, then you do have rights in the name, the brand name or your product name that you're mm -hmm. using. However, it is definitely advisable to always file the federal trademark. Also, your rights will just be stronger. Okay. And so in terms of a federal, you know, the federal um, registration protection, does this help one out a brand, uh, you know, say in, in a foreign country, perhaps maybe in Japan, or would one have to pursue uh, those intellectual property rights uh, there in that foreign jurisdiction? Yes, typically big companies will file a trademark in various other countries. So there's something called the Madrid Protocol, which kind of streamlines it. And a lot of European countries are in the Madrid Protocol. So if you file under that, then you automatically get, and I believe it's something like over 15 European countries um, would be included in that trademark filing. Okay. So to pivot back to the case, uh, there was a final brief just submitted um, in this case, uh, on behalf of Monster. Um, and if we take a look at, I don't if you have the, the logos right in front of you, I mean, in, in your, you know, you know, opinion off the record, obviously, uh, do you think there's any similarities there, any substantial similarities between the two marks? There are some similarities. I mean, both do look like scratch marks, although novel, I don't know if, it's novel. I don't know if beast marks would be considered as novel. And the monster M does in fact look like an, the letter M to me, a lowercase M. Yeah, it does. I have to agree. Um, and I have to say that uh, the new logo, you know, looks very similar, uh, you know, to the monster uh, logo. Um, now, if you look at the old Raptors logo from, you know, uh, 94, uh, I think, you know, there wouldn't be so much of an issue, but, uh, you that know, one is different. That's right. Yeah, extremely different. Um, and so I guess if you were to rebrand, uh, as they did, if, if you were, you know, maybe to counsel a brand on, you know, a change, you would go through, um, the test database, uh, you know, to ensure there aren't any marks that were similar. Now, do you think because the, the products, um, almost have the same sort of description, maybe in uses um, that perhaps that will, that has caused this clash? Yes, it is. It is possible. Although to me, when I think of monster energy, I think of their carbonated drinks. Although I do know that they have clothing and a lot of merchandise that right. would go with that. So exactly. I could see, yeah, kind of where they're coming from too. Right. And, and to just take it from, you know, their brief, uh, you know, they, they've spent a lot of that 6.2 billion on marketing efforts, which primarily quote, primarily focused on sponsorship of athletes, teams, and athletic events. So you can see why if an athletic team sort of were to get in their lane, uh, you know, they would go, you know, as far as they needed to go to, you know, ensure they have those rights protected. Right. Now, Kasha, that is all we have for you today. We really appreciate, uh, you know, you taking your time and uh, lending us uh, your time to give us, you know, your expertise on these various issues and, you know, how the, the worlds of intellectual property and sports can really um, sort of coexist. Um, and I'm glad we were able to get this cross-pollinization almost um, of our two various expertise. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun for me, something different. Now, yes, it was very different for me. Uh, like I said, you were the very first 
at Legal Ease guest. Um, you know, so kudos to you. We'll be sending you a gold star. Uh, Thank you. I feel very honored. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so tell us more about your podcast. We didn't get to that yet. Um, and you talk at length uh, more about, you know, the intersection of fashion and intellectual property law, right? Yes. So my podcast is called Fashion Law Network, and it's pretty new. I started it three months ago, kind of during this COVID-19 quarantine. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always wanted to learn a lot about, you know, the behind the scenes of fashion designers and lawsuits in particular, especially there's been kind of a growing popularity of design patents out there with a lot of these big fashion houses. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, different lawsuits, a lot of counterfeiting issues going on with these high end um, designers. So it's always been really interesting for me to kind of see what is going on you know, in their complaints and their answers and what is ultimately ordered in the end. Um, So I kind of talk about that. And I discuss cases based in Italy and France and all over, although most of them are here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And a side part that's been really fun is it's been really fun connecting with other people in the fashion industry and just other attorneys all over the United States. I've met a lot of really cool people. So it's been it's been a fun project for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, you know, to all the Athlegalese listeners out here, I know you all are sports junkies, but if you want to get your fashion fix, you know, be sure to check uh, check out Kasha's podcast. Um, and where can they find this podcast? You can find it on iTunes, the Apple Podcasts, um, and Spotify. Those are kind of the two uh, main platforms. Okay, cool. You guys check those out. Kasha, we really appreciate your time. Um, And we'll check you next time. Great. Bye, Mark. Bye-bye. Now that concludes episode number 14. As usual, And as always, we appreciate you all checking in, checking out our content. Hope you enjoyed the change of pace. We certainly enjoyed our first guests. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and comment on Instagram, Twitter. And you can always send us an email at athlegalease at at gmail.com. Thanks for checking us out. I'll check you guys next time. Peace.